All right, let's all stand together. All right, good morning to our Facebook Live folks and our congregation is now standing and let's begin reading in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 and we'll read through verse 20 but we'll stop our study at verse 18 after a bit. So Mark chapter 1 verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, once again this is John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. All right, please be seated. Now, last week we looked at the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We, we saw a passage that dealt with the lessons that we wanted to learn about the, from the interaction of Jesus with his disciples today. Because I read Mark early this week, devotionally, as I read that, I saw things in it that I thought were going to be really important for us to discuss this morning. And, and coming out of two of Kim and my talking during our devotions, we were just praising God for the way we see him working through you in the lives of others. I mean, we were just, it was just like this and this and this and this, just stuff that we're able to see. And then that fits so well with what Jesus said to his early disciples. So let's just go to verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, this again is John the Baptist. And the as we get over, turn, keep your finger here, but turn to chapter 6, verse 17, where Mark goes back to explain how John ended up in prison. So in John 6, 17, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. Why? On account of Herodias, the wife of his sister-in-law, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias then had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but couldn't do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, so he kept him safe. And anyway, then he goes on, you know the story of how Herodias' daughter dances for Herod at a party, and Herod gets all excited and, and says, I'll give you, a, you know, up to half of my kingdom. And, and Herodias has 
her daughter asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so you know that story. But the way he got into prison was because he was confronting Herod with his marriage to his sister-in-law, which was unlawful. So John is in prison, back to Mark 1.14. After John had been taken into custody then, Jesus came into Galilee. So he went from further south in Judea where he was baptized <coughs> into north part into Galilee by the Sea of Galilee preaching the gospel of God. What I'm talking about here is, and I need the iPad to do it, I guess. Where did I put it? It's on the piano. All right. What I'm talking about, better say it into the mic. What I'm talking about is the current context. So John has been thrown into prison. It says that he was, back to 14, taken into custody, literally what that says is that he was handed over. And it's the same phrase that's used when Jesus was betrayed. And the, it's in the passive voice, which just has the flavor of, this is God's plan. It's just going the way God has ordained this to happen. So that's the whole flavor of that verse. Now Jesus comes into Galilee then preaching or proclaiming, announcing the gospel of God. Now the word gospel, look up above, is, and you can see it, evangelism. The EV part of it is translated good. And the angel, as you know, an angel is a messenger, brings a message. So it's a good message. Or we call it the good news. That's what Jesus was preaching. It was the good news Look at the end of verse 14, of God. Now that could mean and, and, and means both. It is from God and it's about God. It's the good news of new life that is now going to be made available to everyone. It's the good news of reconciliation with God that we can have our sins forgiven and the, the barrier between us and God can be removed because Jesus came in it and finished the work on the cross. It's the good news that we can now be forgiven our sins and set free from the guilt of our sin, but also the slavery of sin in our lives. Jesus can set us free to live the abundant life that God will, his own life that he will give to us if we respond appropriately to the gospel. So can you see why it's good news? I hope it's good news in your life. And so... That sets the stage. And then that brings us to verse 15, where we find the content of the message, the content of the communication. Look at verse 15. This is what Jesus was saying. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's take the first two parts of that first. He says that the time is fulfilled. There are two Greek words for time, as we've talked about before. The first is chronos, from which we get what? Chronological time. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades, uh, centuries, millennium. That's like a, you could draw a timeline. Chronological time is super important. 
How else would we know when we're all going to get together for church? Chronological time, we use it to manage our lives. It's, it's very important. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. And he's not using that word here. He's using the Greek word kairos. It's another kind of time. It's, if you were to read Colossians 1, 4, no, 4, 5. Remember at the, toward the end of Colossians, Paul says, making the most of each opportunity, or literally seizing the moment, seizing the time, taking advantage of the time. That's what this means. He's saying the opportune, significant, decisive moment has arrived. And we have to be careful not to measure our lives by chronological time only. Again, it's important for us to set boundaries and make commitments and fulfill commitments. Chronological time is, is essential for life. However, we have to be careful. You've heard the saying, time is money. Okay, slow down a little bit. What, what do you mean by that? How much does it cost then to pray? How much does it cost to read your Bibles every day? Well, if I do that, then I won't have time to do this, or I'd have to wake up earlier, I'd have to stay awake a little bit later in the evening. How long, how much does it cost to listen to God, to each other? How much does it cost to listen to somebody long enough to know what they really are saying or what they really need so that you can actually love them? So you can't measure that stuff by chronological time. There are moments. Our life consists of kairos moments, one after another after another. Doesn't that make sense? We always have an opportune moment that we're supposed to seize and use for God. That's why he put us here. Jesus said that moment, the critical moment of history appointed by God to fulfill his promised salvation has arrived. Jesus was right there. He brought it. Look up above at Galatians 4, 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul wrote, But when the fullness of time came, that kairos, when the Kairos moment arrived, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The moment had arrived, and I'll look back at, at one fifteen. The second part of that is that the time is fulfilled, the moment has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. It is here. What's he talking about there? I've preached on the kingdom several times. I think it's such an interesting thing that I want to keep wrapping my mind around better and better. The kingdom of God, the, the people of Jesus' day were anticipating the king coming. They, as you know, thought it would be an earthly, physical kingdom. Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus is talking about something else that happens first. The kingdom does come. He ushered it in. It, he inaugurated the kingdom. But what the kingdom of God is, is a realm, a spiritual realm of existence 
where God is the king over the human heart. If you're a Christian, as Paul wrote, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. So it's a spiritual realm that we are transferred into. Our citizenship is transferred from earth to heaven, but it's a spiritual realm that we live in right now. It is present right now. As Jesus said elsewhere, the spirit of God is in you. I mean, the the kingdom of God is in you. And so if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. You live in a whole other world. You look around at the physical, but that isn't the the ultimate reality. It's the spiritual realm that you now exist in, in a physical body, in a physical world, so that the spirit of God can use you spiritually in this physical realm. One day when Jesus returns, it will be physical as well. It'll be the spiritual kingdom of God, and it will be physical. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus will reign in righteousness over everyone that is part of his kingdom. But right now, as you know, it's an already, not yet, fully reality that we live in as Christians. So, the time is here. This is the moment. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm bringing it. I am the king. Now the content at the end of verse 15 does include a demand to respond to that information, that truth. Okay, So we'll call this number three, the consequent commands. He gives us two commandments that flow out of, it, it just, it requires a response. I'm here. This is the moment. Respond. And he tells us, he gives us the two sides of the coin of salvation. And I want you to understand this. I really want you to. I am so thankful that I understand, that I, God showed me this, it makes a big difference to me, and I'm just surprised. I'm not saying I'm smarter. He didn't show these other people. Maybe it's just the way they verbalize it, but so many of my commentaries, I'm just befuddled when I read them, and when they talk about repentance or they translate repentance, they talk about turning around. Yeah, when you end up repentant, you will turn around, but turning if, if he wanted to say turn around, he would have said turn around. He didn't say that. He said, repent. This is what repent means. So you can fill that in first. First side of the coin of salvation is, Jesus says it in verse 15, repent. But this is the word he used. Look up above. Metanoia. I know I've taught this to you. I've said it over and over and over again, but I guarantee on Wednesday morning, if I ask the men to tell me what repentance is, A lot of times I won't hear this answer, so I want you to understand this. So listen carefully. I want you to get it, so that the people who aren't here today, when they ask about it, you can explain it to them. Repentance is metanoia. Meta means to change. Okay, metamorphosis, you've heard me say this a thousand times, I did it on my midweek meditation again. Meta, metamorphosis, change form, change. Nous, noia means mind, 
change your mind. That's what repentance means. Now, if you change your mind, listen, the battleground is where? The mind. Where's Satan's playground? The mind. What has to change in order for you to turn away from sin and to turn around? Your mind. It's all in our minds. It's truth and or believing a lie, being deceived in our minds. And if we believe something is true, we will act upon it. Period. We will act upon what we believe is true. Well, no, not necessarily. I believe that God, he wants me to be holy, but then, but then I still, uh, I believe that, but I sin. No, the reason you sin is because you believe that that's going to be better for you. The reason you still do it is because you believe that will be better for you. The only thing that's going to make it different, the only way you and I are going to be set free from the sin that we still, that sin that still so easily entangles us, the times that we get impatient, the times that we are selfish, the times that we, you can make the list. You know what you struggle with the most. You should know that by now. Make that list. The reason you do that is because you believe that's going to make me happy. Until that changes in our minds and we realize and we believe that is not going to make me happy, then and only then will we turn away from it. Say no to it. That is what repentance means. The second part of that, the second side of that coin is faith. Faith is an interesting word. It is also translated, the next slide, believe, trust. Because faith, the Greek word pistuo, doesn't have a good word like for Jesus to say, uh, faith me. It just doesn't work real well. So we say, okay, in English that would sound better if I said, believe, believe in me. But, but it all means the same thing. If you truly believe, that means that's what you trust That's what you commit to. That's what this belief or faith is. Now, that begs the question, where do I get it? How can it happen in me? And you've heard me say this over and over again. I'll prove it to you scripturally. Maybe you can prove that I'm wrong scripturally. Then we need to have that conversation because I want to understand this better. I want to teach it truthfully. I want to teach it accurately. I believe scripture teaches that both repentance and faith are gifts from God. He gives them to us. Okay, how do I know that? Remember last week, jot these down if you haven't already. John chapter 6, we looked at it last week. John 6, 44 and 65. John 6, 44 and 65. Go and read those over and over and over again. Tell me if I'm misunderstanding it. It's crystal clear. No one can come to me unless my Father draws him. Jesus says that twice. Unless it is granted to him. You cannot come. No blind, dead human being, dead in sin, spiritually dead, has the capacity to repent. 
You hear the message, repent, and then God uses the word to do something in your mind to change it. But God does it. How do you know that? Write this down. Jot this down. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 2, 4. 2 Timothy 2, 2, 4. 2 Timothy 2, 24 goes like this. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. I've got to be able to do this if I'm up here. Able to teach, patient when wronged, if perhaps, oh, gently correcting those who are in opposition, gently correcting them, if perhaps God might, because they're wrong, so he needs to correct them. They're thinking wrong. Gently correcting them, if perhaps then God might grant them repentance. So how are you going to repent? If God grants it to you. If God gives it to you. And he might not. But the only way it's going to happen is if I can gently correct with the truth and I do it in a manner where I don't attack the other person and make their walls go up and get all defensive. And yeah, I blow it at times. You probably do too. So we want to grow in this area. We want to get better at it. Because that's the only way God's going to grant them repentance. But it's a gift from God. That's my main point right now. Now, How do I know if faith is a gift from God? I thought faith is just something I do, right? He tells me to do it. Yeah, you do it because he gives it to you. He has to do that first. How do I know that? Ephesians 2. Jot down Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I don't want to make this verse say something it doesn't say or say more than it says. But here's what the verse says. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, God's gift, through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And you may say, oh, he's not talking about faith, he's talking about the whole package of salvation. Doesn't the whole package of salvation include faith? He just said it. By grace you are saved, by God's gift you are saved, through faith, and that out of yourselves, is a gift of God. It is not as a result of your works, so that no one would boast. So when I look at what scripture teaches, I believe it's a gift of God. Why is that important? Because if you don't believe it's a gift of God, you think you will do it by yourself. Or you will just grit your teeth and flex, you know, and and I'm just going to believe. I'm just going to repent. You can't. Only by the grace of God can you repent. And only by the grace of God can you believe. So why is that helpful? Because I've experienced this so many times in my life. It is not until I get angry enough at my sin, sick enough of my sin, that I finally cry out to God and say, God, I can't repent of this myself. I need your help. Please, I know it's a gift from you. Help me. Grant me repentance. And then he begins to change the mind. And you begin to see, oh, that's how destructive that behavior is. That's how damaging that behavior is to my relationships. That's how harmful that stuff is. He'll show that to you. But he has to make that transformation in our minds. I hope that's helpful. Because he wants to set you free. And that's the only way it's going to happen.
Faith, belief, trust, repentance, these are part of the gospel message. This is the good news. Now, how do I know that it is a message that should, that should be preached today? Because I know people, I love them, they're otherwise pretty solid biblical Christians, and they teach that repentance should not be part of the gospel message. And they say, I add to the gospel because I preach repentance is a part of the gospel message. Well, let me prove my point right now. I believe with crystal clarity. Um, I want to turn to Acts chapter 17. If you want to turn there with me, keep your finger here. But in Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul... Now, the reason I'm saying this is because Jesus has already ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father, so Jesus isn't here. Now the Apostles are out preaching the gospel converting people to Christ, building the church. The Apostle Paul ends up in Athens, Greece. A whole bunch of philosophers are there just interested in the latest fad, what people are talking about. So they invite the Apostle Paul uh, to share with him the crazy stuff he was talking about, resurrection, that kind of stuff. Listen to what Paul said to them at the end of his sermon. Fascinating sermon. But here's what he says at the end of it. He says, Therefore, having overlooked... The times of ignorance, I'm in verse 30, Acts 17.30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, all right, now's the time. This is the Kairos moment. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. So who should repent? Everybody is called to repent or suffer the consequences. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness when Jesus returns through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, he's going to judge the world, so repent. Change your minds about your sin, say no to sin and say yes to God. Oh, but he didn't say faith, so you just repent. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, come back next week. Maybe we'll listen to you then. So Paul went out of their midst. But watch verse 34. But some men joined him and what? Believed. Faith. Repentance? No. Faith? Yes. It's, as I've said, I don't want to overuse the illustration, it's like the marriage ceremony. Coming to Christ is like getting married to Jesus. It is getting married to Jesus. But when you stand in front and you're ready to commit to this person, something has changed your mind. You changed your mind somewhere along the way. Your mind changed and you said, you know what? No. I'm going to say no to every other person on earth. I'm going to turn away from them. I'm going to stand at the altar, face the one that I'm going to commit my life to now, and I'm going to say what? Yes, repentance and faith. They are the two sides of the gospel message. They are the two sides of salvation. And we must understand that or we won't be able to apply it to our lives or explain it to anybody else. It is, uh, okay, we're right there. Are you still in Acts? Go over to, this is just wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for making it so clear in your word. Look at Acts chapter 20. 
Acts chapter 20, we'll look at verse 20 and 21. This is the Apostle Paul, the last time he spends time with the Ephesian elders. He calls them to himself, and listen to what he says. Verse 20 and 21. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of what? Repentance toward God, changing my mind and turning then, saying yes, notice sin, toward God and what? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. So, that's the gospel message. Now, let's go back to our passage in Mark chapter 1. And as we go to verse 16, we're going to see that there there actually is another commandment that we more covered last week, so I didn't put it into the outline. But let's look at verse 16. Mark 1.16. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So the, next, the other commandment is follow me. Follow me. Now, let's time out. Did anyone, like one of our men at Bible study brought up Wednesday morning, you should have done this. If you read Mark 1 after I preached John 1 last week, what question would have come to your mind? Who's telling the truth? John said it happened this way. Mark said it happened this way. If you don't read them in close connection, you don't even think about it so much when you're reading through it. But it seems to contradict John's account of how Jesus called his disciples. That's a great question. It's an apparent contradiction in Scripture. So what's the answer to it? Because people use that to say, see, John said it happened this way, therefore you can't trust Scripture, it's not true, there are contradictions in Scripture. There's no contradiction at all if you understand what's going on here. They're different authors. God is inspiring them to make different points, and they haven't changed anything. So here, the the, the most plausible, simple way to explain this is, and you had to listen to last, year's, last week's sermon to understand where I'm going here. But last week we saw Andrew and John, probably with John the Baptist. They were his disciples. And they saw Jesus walk by. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And they started following Jesus. Jesus invites them to spend the rest of the day with him. Then Andrew went and found his brother Peter, brought him to Jesus, and then and that happened. And then... Uh, Jesus saw Philip, said, follow me. Philip went and found Nathaniel, brought him to Jesus, come and see. That's what we studied last week. That all happened. Well, then what did they all do the next day? They went fishing. They were fishermen. So they were fishing. And then presumably at some some time subsequent to that, Jesus was, okay, now we're going to go on our three-week traveling missionary tour, and now it's time to go. So he, then he did this. He walked up and he saw Andrew and Peter in their fishing boat. And he said, come, follow me. I'll make you fish. You think you're fishing now? Come with me. We're going to go fish men. And then he walked a little further. And there was James and John in their fishing boat. So there's no contradiction whatsoever. So let's go back to verse 16. 
And so he said, follow me. And now I want to go to verse 17 and talk about point number four, the contemporary connection. The contemporary connection. And by contemporary, I do, I want to get to what does it look like today for us. But this contemporary connection actually goes from the day of Pentecost to the day that Jesus returns. Nothing has changed in the method of making disciples. And so, as Alan Cole says, he wrote in his commentary, fisherman, farmer, builder, reaper, shepherd, steward, servant, the Gospels abound in such homely, such, you know, this type of homely, and by that he means, I think, down-to-earth. The Gospels abound in such down-to-earth metaphors, each one of them describing a different aspect of our common obligations to our Lord and to our fellow men. So, fishermen implies our obligation to Jesus. He says, follow me. That's discipleship talk. That means you submit to my authority. You attach yourself to my person. You imitate me. You emulate me. That's what an apprentice does, a disciple does. Wants to become like their master so they can do the same work their master does. And that's what we are all called to submit to, to be his disciples. So the contemporary connection, okay, for those three years that they walked with Jesus, they were, so this is what fishing was like then. By the way, how many of you are fishermen? Raise your hand high if you're a fisherman. And by men, I mean inclusive of all girls and everything. Okay, okay. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, I hope you raise your hand when I ask that question again in about five minutes. If you're a disciple of Jesus... You are a fisherman. Now, what it looked like then was primarily catch them. We call that, we would call that evangelism. Then they just followed Jesus. He sent them out to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent them to Jewish people. He was just proclaiming the time is here. Messiah is here. The kingdom is here. And they were casting their nets and just bringing in people to the banquet. Okay, today, however, we would call our work uh, to catch them. I'm going to show you this in a moment where you want to fill in under letter B, catch them and clean them. Okay, where I got that from in the title of the message, which I want to tweak just slightly. Remember back in the 90s, those of you, some of you weren't born then, but us Christians who were part of this church way back then. Remember when all the Christian t-shirts came out? We started wearing, buying Christian t-shirts. Well, I bought one. It was like a sweatshirt. And it said, Simon Peter's Offshore Fishing Shop. Then on the back, it said, you catch him, he'll clean him. Now, I don't, I would say, he, he'll catch him, and then he'll clean him, and he'll use you. I think that's theologically tighter. But the point is kind of good anyway. So you could draw an umbrella. Do I have that? Yeah, right here. Catch them, 
So this is our job. Sometimes we're involved in the catching process, but it's all fishing. We, we're the one that leads the person to Christ. Or we're, we're witnessing to somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet. You're, you're, you're part of the catching process. We would call that evangelism. Now there's another side of it that's going on now, and that is to clean them. Jesus will clean them up. That's where teaching comes in. That's where we call it discipling, mentoring. Uh, the word disciple literally means learn, learning. And so that's what I'm doing right now. If there's somebody in here who isn't a Christian yet, hasn't made that commitment, hasn't repented and believed in Jesus for salvation, well, then, then I'm catching. But if you're here and you've already been caught, then you need to be cleaned. And that's why we preach like this so that you would change your mind about sin in your life and you would repent and you'd learn how to do everything that he has commanded us. Let me go back. Let's see. Okay. You're in Mark chapter 1. I want to just establish a couple of things. Mark chapter 1. Go back one page or two to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 18. This is the Great Commission. You should memorize this. This is our mission statement. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, this is just before he ascends into heaven, his last words to his disciples. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. The verb, make disciples. As you're going, make disciples. So lead them to Christ, catch them. But also clean them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll look at verse 20. Teaching them. Teaching them to do. Teach them how to do it. Teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. And, and you don't have to do it alone. You can't do it alone. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit will be in you. I will be in you, with you, to the end of the age. But you are to go and make disciples. That's what we are about at this church. That is our mission activity. Look up above at Acts eight. He also said just before he ascended, recorded there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you day of Pentecost, and you then will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, even to Cresco, Iowa. So this is happening today. It started then, it's happening today. And look at 2 Timothy 2.2. This is the discipleship part, the teaching part. This is what I'm doing right now to most of you. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these then entrust to faithful men, women, people, who will then be able to teach others also. It's a teaching process. So you could draw a big umbrella called disciple-making, and then on one side is evangelism or catching them. The other side is discipleship. That's cleaning them. God does it all, but he uses us. J.C. Ryle said, just about the catching and cleaning, he said, all of us, once penitent, that's his way of saying once we have repented, 
need daily stirring up to deeper repentance. Can you agree with that one? We need daily stirring up to deeper repentance because there's stuff we haven't said no to yet. And he continues on, all of us, though believing, repentance, belief, need constant exhortation to increased faith. So it's a process of growth, maturity, being taught to do things that we, we don't do yet. Being more and more and more like Jesus. All right, here's what I want to wrap things up with. Given that the Father draws people to Jesus, and he uses people like you and me, then I want to encourage you first of all, because as I said, when, when I read this devotionally and I was fishing, man, and Kim and I started talking and we just started looking around and thinking about the people in the church and how you are doing things in your... I, but I want you to understand that that is your mission field. You, Each one of you has your mission field. Right? You with me? Your mission field overlaps with my mission field, but it's not my mission field. Every single one of you has people in your life. And there are obvious ones, your, your family members, the people who are close. Okay? You could think of a pyramid. You know, I have my prayer uh, list like a pyramid. That doesn't mean I'm better than anybody. It means I'm the one that's praying. And then I pray for the closest to me first, and then I keep branching out and branching out and branching out. You can flip the pyramid upside down. You can do a spider web. You can use any illustration that helps you. But you have people in your life that constitute your mission field. And our job is to be continuously fishing. We're on a fishing expedition. This is just one metaphor, but it's an important metaphor. Whatever we do, we ought to be able to consciously say that what I'm doing and my intentionality about this relationship and people in this arena of life for me, that my intention is to fish men. How am I doing? Am I chasing them away? Am I the guy standing up in the boat, rocking the boat and yelling and screaming so all the fish swim away? Am I living like a pagan or am I living like somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus? Or am I the person who's really intentional and careful about how I bait up and how I, what hook I use? And I'm, I'm always thinking about how am I going to lead this person closer to Christ? Some need catching. Some need cleaning. I'm supposed to influence them in that way. And you're doing it. We're not, none of us are doing it perfectly, but we're all doing it. I just praise God for the way I look at you guys' life, and I think, wow, look, look at what they're doing. And it's, it's in ways not... The rest of us, here's your little thing, here's their little thing. It might overlap like this. Don't judge them, just get busy with yours. Right? You don't know what they're doing. Don't complain about other people not doing their job. How do you know what they're doing? You don't. It's none of your business. You, remember what he said to Peter, you don't worry about John. You follow me. Let's get about the business of our Father. I just want you to know the mission, we support foreign missions, but they're not the only missionaries. The bulk of the mission done in this church is right here, right now. You're going to all leave, and you're going to go out there and go fishing. Okay, be encouraged by that. Be built up and, man, 
God has included me in it's the fullness of time. Jesus is sitting on his throne. Jesus is drawing all men to himself. Jesus is taking every enemy as a footstool under his feet. He is conquering the world right now, and he's using fishermen like you and me. So, will you bow your heads with me now, please? Jesus is saying to you, come, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. Just talk to him about that. If you're living in sin, and you know it, it's hindering your ability to fish. So you can repent right now. The Holy Spirit, pray for God to grant you repentance. Pray that the Holy Spirit would convince you that that is not good for you. You can repent and you can trust God more fully that he's going to make you happy even if you give up that stuff.